Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 133. So glad you could join me. Um, today's guest is Roberta Beery. She'll be here in about 10 or 15 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. All that good stuff to help poetry spread around the internet. Now, we have a few special guests today um, from the Poetry Response series. Everybody knows what's happening in the Ukraine, of course. And um, we published, we received almost 500 submissions for Poetry Respond this weekend. So we decided to publish a suite of three different poems. And we should have all three poets here. Um, later in the show, we'll have uh, the Sunday and Monday poets. But right now, we have Julia kolchinsky Dasbach on the line. And uh, here she is right here. Hey, Julia, how you doing? Oh, hang on a second. So there we go. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm uh-huh. new to Skype I, or Zoom. I should have um, explained everybody too. We're trying this show this time through Zoom because everybody likes Zoom better. Um, when we started the show three years ago, everybody was on or Zoom didn't really exist, and what it did was clunky and bad. And now we're just using uh, using Zoom. So I have to learn the um, the, the buttons to push. But um, but so hi, Julie. How you doing? Hi, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, so do you want to explain a little bit about what inspired this poem? I mean, the, the subject matter is obvious, but um, but how did the poem come to be? Uh, sure. So um, I'm originally from Ukraine. I uh, came as a Jewish refugee when I was six years old. And um, like so many, especially those who emigrated, um, those with ties, I don't think any of us thought this could ever happen. Um but I think particularly when I read Putin's uh, horrific speech, I didn't just think it was going to happen. I was certain it would happen mm-hmm. because um, his speech made clear that he had gone mad. Um, his speech made clear uh, that his entire notion of history was skewed and um that there was no stopping what he was going to do. Um, And so I was terrified. And my only coping mechanism for the next couple days um, from, you know, like Monday and Tuesday was to work on this erasure poem. Um, And of course, then everything um, started to happen. Um, And then there was, has been a a big halt in my writing and I'm trying to return to it um, through trauma. Um, but but I, it, it was just a way for me to reclaim language um, and reclaim history that he is just completely severing mm-hmm. and rewriting. Yeah, I think, I mean, the, the main point that you're, you're pointing out is that he says that the Ukrainians are Russian, right, in that speech. And I was watching a... Um, a, a news broadcast, um, which was about like, what is the propaganda like in Russia? And all the people were sort of saying that same thing. So can you explain a little bit about, about why that's not true? Um, well, it's not only that, it's the, you know, if you watch the both channels, so um, I have a lot of friends, right, who have all the news channels, both from Ukraine and Russia. Um, Russia is not calling it a war. They're calling it a special operation. They are saying that they are targeting no civilians, that they are not bombing any cities, that they are not invading. Um, they are saying that they are, when they are hitting something, they are evacuating everyone. Um, 
that this is specifically for the areas of Donetsk and Lugansk, which were, you know, in my explanation of the poem, I say that when Russia or when Ukraine seceded, um, they did so by a 93%, you know, affirmation of the fact that they did not want to be a part of the Soviet Union in December of 91. Um, and the 7% that did not want to were in the areas of most mostly in the areas of Donetsk, Lugansk and Crimea. Mm -hmm. So those were the areas that did have more ethnic Russians. Therefore, there is more upset in those areas. That does not mean that everyone in those areas didn't. There are plenty of uh, ethnic Russians who want to be in Ukraine, on Ukrainian soil. Um, there are plenty of ethnic Ukrainians in those areas, um, but that's why those contested areas mm -hmm. uh, have more upheaval or had more um, upheaval. Um, and so those were the areas that he just wanted to snip away at because they were already the areas um, where there was more support for Russia. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's that's what the media is saying. And, and what's devastating to me is that the news outlets in Russia will not hear about the numbers of, you know, what are the numbers now? 3,000 casualties, military casualties, more, the numbers, the numbers vary. But those in Russia are not going to hear that 3,000 plus of their men have died. Yeah. They will hear that Russia is being victorious that no one has died, uh, that they are just liberating the areas of Donetsk and Lugansk uh, that have been suffering at the hands of Ukrainians. Um, and it's just devastating. It's just devastating. Yeah. Well, there's so many inspiring stories and, and videos and, and images, and Zelensky's amazing. I think the whole world is just falling in love with Ukraine. And, and maybe that's one bright side. And hopefully... I don't know, hopefully something can be resolved quickly and in a peaceful way. Um, and writing this poem as an erasure is just such an interesting too, to take the words of that speech and then strip away and to make something new, um, sort of reclaiming the language and, and making it true again. Um, is that, how did, when did you know you wanted to write an erasure of that, of that speech? Um, I think as soon as I started reading it, I started seeing just so many lies in the language and thinking about um, the Soviet history of lies and propaganda, right? This is nothing new. Mm -hmm. uh, this has been fed to uh, the, the Russian speaking, the Slavic speaking world uh, for uh, the latter part, of, uh, most of the 20th century. Um, and so I just wanted to intervene in that history with um, literature Mm -hmm. And literature has always been the way of combating this political propaganda, right? Stalin slaughtered poets, slaughtered them. Uh, you know, there was the night of massacred poets, which is exactly what he did. He just mm -hmm. massacred them um, because they spoke truth to power, um, because they refused to stay silent. And I am so terrified that that is what Putin, I mean, it is, it's what he's been doing. He's been putting, you know, poets and journalists in jail. Mm -hmm. um, and I am um, terrified that he is going to go much further um, because they are trying to stand up and speak and call a war a war and call a war criminal a war criminal and a tyrant a tyrant. Mm -hmm. You know, Mandelstam's infamous poem about 
Stalin, where he talks about him as an animal and his fingers. And Mandelstam got sent to the gulag and died there for that poem. Yeah. For many other things, but primarily for that one overt poem, um, because Mandelstam's other poetry was, you know, much more um, careful and lyric. But that one poem was so overt um, about Stalin. Yeah. Well, do you want to go ahead and read this mirror in Ukraine? Yeah. Um, and 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 we did talk about mir uh, is the word in Russian and in Ukrainian for peace, and it also means like the whole world. Mir in Ukraine, an erasure of address by the president of the Russian Federation, February 21st, 2022, 2235, the Kremlin, Moscow. Mir in Ukraine is country and after a few words history entirely created by russia severing what is historical nobody asked for war longed for distance found shine let me repeat its people not a mistake admit them openly and honestly, Ukraine fully, Ukraine call, Ukraine go back to history, repeat it was impossible, any future, instead bodies wonder why remain, despite injustice, Ukraine, declare Ukraine, repeat Ukraine, reach Ukraine, gold rope never. Ukraine open, Ukraine bind this dictator striking Ukraine. Ukraine, I would mend memory. Generations, Ukraine, branches, rivers, wave, burned. But we know Ukraine split is water, air, black sea, fracture is lack and lost in tatters, Ukraine, its root carries on. Listen carefully, please. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julie. Just a, a powerful and inspiring poem. Um, and you have an event you wanted to share, too, that you're doing this coming Wednesday. Uh, what was that? Yes, yes. Um, so as part of um, the reading series, I run Words Together, Worlds Apart, and Tim will post the links to the Facebook um, and Twitter pages of that series. We are bringing voices from Ukraine. So poets in Ukraine are going to read their work alongside their translators who are here in America. You know, you might think that Poetry would be the last thing on their mind as they're hiding in their basement and sheltering from the bombs that fall. But actually, these poets who feel abandoned by the West, um, we're excited to hear that we want to hear from them. Um, and so we are going to host this event on Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, we are raising funds for honoraria so that we can pay every single poet who is coming from Ukraine, um, whose voice are coming from Ukraine, and the event will be a fundraiser. So all the funds raised for the audience, you know, the audience members um, are going to go to humanitarian aid efforts. Um, so 
if you can come and support, that would be great. Yeah, it sounds like a wonderful event, and I definitely will. Thanks so much, Julie, for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, take care. Yeah, so that was uh, Julia uh, kolchinsky Dasbach with Mir in Ukraine. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to go to our main guest for today, Roberta Beery. So we will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, Roberta Berry identifies as gender expansive and writes to connect with the disenfranchised to let them know they are not alone. Her work appears in Rattle, 100 Word Story, Cultural Weekly, and the New York Times. Her short poem collection, The Unworn Necklace, received a finalist award from Poetry Society of America. Her prose poem collection, Deflection, was named a National Poetry Month Best Pick by Washington Independent Review of Books. Her next haiku collection, Carousel, won the Snapshot Press Manuscript Book Award and should be out by by the end of 2022. She lives in Mayo County, Ireland with her husband, Frank Stella. And here she is, Roberta Beery. Hi, Roberta. How you doing? Hi there. Hi, Tim. Hi, everybody. Yeah, Thanks for so, having me. Yeah, it's so great to see you from across the pond. Um, <laughs> yeah. do, do you want to explain how you ended up there? Because that's an interesting story all on its own. Um, well, it's. I can't believe I've been here five years. It seems like I just arrived. But... Um, after uh, I retired from my attorney job, which I held for 35 years in various cities, took care of both my parents until they died in their later years and um, took care of them in their later years, put my kids through school, paid off my mortgage. Um, I said to my husband one day, you know, we'd always talked about traveling and moving abroad and this is probably if we're not going to do it now we're not going to do it and so we um downsized put from our house into two little rooms that we have in storage you know enough for two rooms and mostly books i gotta say (laughs) and uh books i couldn't bear to part with we got rid of a lot of stuff donated a lot of stuff sold the house and then i had always wanted to live in ireland because I'm Irish on my father's side, and it was easy for me to, um, if you have grandparents born in Ireland, it's fairly easy to live in Ireland. Um, So, and he was up for it, which was amazing. And uh, so we live in this little town in County Mayo where we have, you know, all fresh food and no antibiotics in the food like in the States. And uh, we're by the mountains and the seaside, and I think there's maybe s- between four and 6,000 people in our town, so it's it's really nice, and they do value writers here, and it's wonderful being retired from um, my billable hours and just being able to write. It's it's really a dream come true. Well, it's funny, because I sort of imagined a different, slightly different story, because you were going around the world for the Haiku Foundation. And so I thought I, that it had something to do with that because you went to Ireland <laughs> and all of a sudden you lived in Ireland. So I imagine that you like went there and like fell in love with it somehow. And just like, you know, when that was over, you just stayed. But no. <laughs> the best thing about Ireland, which you'll find when you come here, um, is that if you have any Irish ancestry, and I think you do, it's like you've come home. Hmm. And at least for me, things that other people 
find irritating about me, which there's a big long <laughs> list of my little quirks that irritate people. They don't irritate so many people here because a lot of people here have the same quirks. <laughs> so that to me was paradise. You know, I feel I felt really in that sense coming home. You know, I've come home, uh, and my husband's who doesn't have any Irish ancestry has been very good about it. So, so far, so good. So uh, let's do a poem. What do you want to start out with? Um, on a more um, Somber note, this is a happened from deflection, Irish twins. I, I just prefer to let the poems speak for themselves, but if, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Irish twins. We share an attic room. In the corner is an old double bed that smells and sags on one side, my side. Late at night, I hear my heartbeat loud, so loud he will hear it. He will think my heart is calling him up the attic stairs. His footsteps are heavy. He smells of old spice and cherry tobacco. My eyes shut tight. I know he is there. I feel his weight. Never on my side, always on the side she sleeps. When the bed springs sing their sad song, I fly away up to the ceiling. My sister is already there. Together we hold hands. Looking down, we see our bodies. We are not moving. We are as still as the dead. Attic rain, the backyards swing off kilter. Yeah, beautiful. That was Irish twins um, from, yes. from deflection. And so, so that was an example of a hyben. And, um, and you're the hyben editor for a modern um, haiku. Um, so, so what is it? Can you explain what a hyben is and, and what draws you to the hyben? Just in case people don't know, because, you know, there are a lot of listeners who don't know. A lot of different I poems. mean, I like to think of a hyben as a prose poem that uses haiku that links to the prose and evokes um, a, a more layered emotional response than the reader. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't repeat the prose. The haiku doesn't repeat the prose. And you can have more than one haiku. The ones, I think the ones I'm reading have just one haiku in it. But, um, you know, it was, goes back to the 1600s to Basho in Japan. He had the travel vlog that he did in the highland style, the narrow road to the deep north. So um, I just, you know, it's more like a stolen um, form. <laughs> at least I've stolen it and made it my own, you know, with variations on, on the form. So uh, if I also write flash fiction, and um, if you write flash fiction or short form fiction, and you also write poetry, which a lot of writers do both those genres, um, you, you shouldn't have too hard a time writing high bun. Not that it's an easy form, but it's it's a bit easier for people that uh, are experienced in both fiction and poetry. 
so so there should be some kind of a, a tension between the haiku and the um and the prose or or whatever you know the, the more journalistic writing that be, comes there, before it there should be a link and also that for me the title is really important like irish twins means siblings born in the same calendar year so they're you know, you'd say my brother's almost a year older and my sister's almost a year older. And you can also, I mean, they're not autobiography, at least mine aren't, but um, there are certainly bi biographical elements to them. So so um, there are a lot of haibun being written now because they're a form that's being taught in MFA programs. And um, you can't just... To write them if you don't have experience writing short form Japanese poetry. You know, if you don't have to write a haiku, <laughs> you're not going to be able to write a haibun. I mean, I've seen them published and I've seen them by well known poets, but as far as I'm concerned, they're, they're, a lot of them are epic fails. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we talked about before when you were a brief guest that um, when I get a haibun submission, I just read the haiku first because then if the haiku is right. garbage, I don't have to worry about reading the rest. And uh, yes. <laughs> because it just, you know, the, the haiku kind of seals the deal. And if it doesn't, if that doesn't work, then everything above it is just a disappointment. And um, I know. And it's, and it's terrible if you do it the other way. And you see this fascinating title that draws you in, and mm -hmm. then the prose is amazing, and then you get to the haiku, and it's—I call it the fatal flaw. <laughs> so it's better to spare yourself that and, mm -hmm. and start with the haiku. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hear another one. I think the next one you want to read was Nighthawks. Yeah, Nighthawks. Um, most of my poems about my mother's um, illness or my parents. My father died before a couple of years before my mother did, and then my mother gradually declined and I took care of her um, on my own for quite a number of years. And uh, normally something like a death, I would give it time to, um, you know, I would give it time to simmer for a few years or a lot of the poems I wrote about my, my mom, I wrote many years after her death, but Nighthawks was just one of the ones that I wrote pretty much when it was very fresh in my mind, um, being with her at, you know, during this bedside vigil, my husband was also with me and, um, I just, it was almost in a sense of my writing for my dad as well, because I had never written what it was like to take care of him as he was dying. So I, I just channeled all those feelings into this, into this poem, Nighthawks. Tonight, her breathing's more shallow. I try to find her favorite songs, search quickly on my iPad, Mac the Knife by Bobby, replays of Vera's We'll Meet Again. But mostly, I just talk and she listens. Eyes glued shut in coma land. Well, past morning, I kiss her rice paper face Stroke her white hair, a voice is crying, calling, Mama, Mama, a word back from the dead, executed in the land of assimilation. Just afternoon, Mama curls in fetal position. I keep watch, rise and fall of out of breath beats. 
too soon it comes, ebb tide. Autumn coolness enters a hand long held in mine. And that was Nighthawks from Deflection. Um, and that is a one-line haiku at the end. Um, do you want to explain, because that's another thing that people don't know. There's just so much I feel like like regular poets don't know about haiku. And uh, Believe me, haiku poets also don't know a lot of things <laughs> about haiku. Maybe that's <laughs> and true, And I'm talking too. about people like myself. Yeah. Seasoned poets who have been writing for twenty so, plus so years in the form. I think I think it might have been your sequence, or maybe it was someone else's that had a. I think it was someone else's actually. It had a, 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 a several haiku in a sequence just this fall, and then one of them was a one-line haiku. And three people emailed me and said, "Tim, I love this haiku sequence, but one of them is missing two lines." <laughs> okay, well, that's it. Was good they felt um, close enough to you to. Um, admit that <laughs> <laughs> so um so what is the um... so those are called monoku yeah by mm-hmm. some people some people just call them one-liners um so so what are you going it's, for it's, it's with a, you with know a in the japanese form of haiku as originally written they're written in one line one one vertical line so um it's not that new you know it's not new at all mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there are people who claim to have invented this form for English language haiku. I'm, I'm usually pretty wary of people who say they've invented a form. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't, uh, I, I have to say that for every person I, I know who said they've invented a form, I found a form, the same form, you know, years earlier, not attributed to that, to that person. Um, so the, the one-liners for me, there, they, you know, because Nighthawks was done in, I wrote it in a stream of consciousness style to, to show that night is day and day is night, and the hours, you know, that it's like a forty-eight hour day or a thirty-six hour day when you're with somebody who's dying, and time doesn't have the same meaning it does in normal circumstances. So. When I wrote the um, the the monoku or the haiku at the end of the poem, I wanted to convey the sense that um, it was a bit of a shock, you know. I mean, you're holding somebody's hand and it's for hours and it's warm, and at some point they're squeezing back and then they stop doing that, and then it's still warm, it's warm, it's warm, it's not as warm as it was. And then all of a sudden, the hand is cold. Mm. So that was a shock to me. And I, I I thought that was, would come across more in the monoku form to somebody reading it as opposed to hearing it. Um, yeah, for me, it feels like the, um, I don't know, there's a way that the a regular haiku has that cut where it's like two spaces existing at the same time is like a central aspect of it. But then yes. the, um, but then the monoku, it sort of like melds them together in a way. So it's like one space having two bodies or something like that. It feels a little bit more. Is that the, the kind of way that you yeah, think? Yeah, and, and the idea of, you know, if I had written it, autumn coolness, stop, enters a hand, stop long held in mind to me it just it, it kind of weakens it you mm-hmm. know and you read it differently and um so I'll, I, although they do look 
fairly easy to write haiku. They are not. I had a lot of trouble with that part of the of the poem. the The prose part was pretty much as it happened, you know. And then ebb tide. I was looking for something to describe. Uh, as you know, the, the the for me the first part of the hyphen and the last part of the prose, the first part of the prose and the last part of the prose, the title and the haiku all kind of have equal weight. So um, it was it was really hard for me to come up with a, a haiku that was true to my experience. And this this one was pretty much autobiographical. Mm-hmm. So so how did you, I know that um, just reading your bio, I've known that you were a lawyer and then you ended up living in Japan in the 90s for a while. And that's when you <laughs> focused on haiku. I was so a trailing you, spouse. Is that how husband it came number, Husband number one who um, is a, uh, uh, I guess now he's, you'd call him a nonfiction writer. He, at the time he was the, um, uh, economics correspondent for the Washington Post. And we had actually met years before through my work as an attorney when he was at Forbes magazine. So we we had, a, um, you know, like a long distance, not work romance because I didn't know what he looked like. But <laughs> uh, when we finally got married and then a few years later had kids, he, he had the, you know, I had the lawyer job and he had the sort of more glamorous job. He worked for the Wall Street Journal and this kind of thing. So when he went to Japan, I followed. That's why I'm called the trailing spouse. There are also husbands who follow wives there. We met a few of those and then the husbands are the trailing spouses. So we lived in Tokyo and that's where I first started um, writing haiku. I had written poetry since I was nine what's my first published poem is each nine. but um i you know that the japanese are really good about opening their culture up to foreigners so they they have this uh, these cultural centers where you can study their you know things like flower arranging or brush painting or um japanese language or haiku and so i i concentrated on japanese language and haiku plus i worked part-time for a japanese law firm and plus, my kids were little and uh, took care of them, too. So it was a very full life. Yeah, it sounds like it. So so what was it about haiku in particular that drew you to that? Like, you've, you've written, you've just focused on haiku for the last, you know, 30 years, I guess, then. What is it about the haiku that had you staying there? And, you know, you said you, well, said you write flash fiction, is, too, but... Uh, Stanley Plumley, who died a couple of years ago, I... I took some master classes from him at the um, in poetry at the Writers' Center in Bethesda, Maryland. He used to say that the more kind of messed up your head is as a person, <laughs> the more disciplined the form that you write in. <laughs> so uh, I, 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 you know, that was kind of a complicit to me, but I, I think there is something to that for me. I'm just speaking about my own self now. Because I do, I do like a challenge when I'm writing. I do like these um, uh, where you get, you know, sometimes there are traditional haiku five seven five challenges that the Japanese will do for contests, or where they give you a certain season or something like that. I love those, and I do like I do like the Japanese in translation that I've read. You know, they're they're um, modern and 
centuries old haiku. So I thought, I think that's what drew me to the form that, especially at that time in the, in the kind of the mid nineties, when we came back from Japan and my marriage just imploded, I was kind of blindsided. I was more and more drawn to haiku then because it was one thing that I, I could kind of hold on to and do and not have to, um, you know, show my face to the world kind of thing. Yeah. Well, let's do another one. I think Sunday dinner is next, right? Yeah, that one, that one's a combination of um, both husbands. So <laughs> it's not about husband one or husband two. Also, there was a long break in between when I was a single parent. So, um, But anyway, Sunday dinner. I like my husband, but not the older sister. Too bossy for me. The way she likes to tell me, we don't call him sweetie pie in this house. Who died and made her queen? And the younger sister too, always talking money and how poor growing up. But mostly, I don't like the way they knew him all those stolen years before he found me. Porch glider, the rose thorns back and forth. And that was Sunday dinner, once again, from Deflection. Now, interestingly, both husband number one and husband number two have sister, two sisters. <laughs> And, and no brothers. So depending on my mood, it's about one or the other. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so today it's about both. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so if anybody has any questions for Roberta, just leave them in the chat windows. I'm either on Facebook or YouTube and I'll pass them along. Um, so Roberta, you mentioned the 575 in, in Japanese. And what is your take on that? Um, you know, we we had that long interview with um, Richard Gilbert, who's been on the Rattlecast as well, right. and and he he talks yeah. about the the how you know just short long short is a better way to think of it. Um, how do you think of it? Because there's the whole thing about the different ways the the you know syllabic language versus the metonymous. Yeah, language. I don't get into all the stuff that Richard gets into, and I mean he's an academic, you know, and he's a scholar. Um, I think 575 because uh, so many of the Japanese contests, when they say traditional haiku, they, that's what they mean, 575. And they'll spell it out sometimes in the, in the um, guidelines. But what, what trips people up when they write haiku in English and follow the traditional method they learned in school of the 575 is that they use filler words like the, uh, and, you know, just or while or something to, it weakens the poem. So there are some very good 575 poems in English language haiku and other languages that are not Japanese as well, but they're very strong poems because the poet isn't aiming so much for the syllable count as working on a poem that they, you know, you work on the poem, you have a different syllable count, and then you try to make each line stronger instead of just 
trying to make it five syllables by adding, you know, the old something or other or <laughs> you know, things like that. So you can you can actually tell they're quite easy to find when, especially when I get submissions of Haibun high, high for Modern Haiku, I can always tell who's um, new to the form of Haiku because they put in 575, but just because they have a five, there's a 575 in there doesn't mean that the person is new to the form. There's other things that kind of give it away. So you can have a very strong Haibun with a 575 Haiku that's great, you know, and it'll be published because that, that poet can write 353 or they can write Monaco or they can write, you know, short, long, short, as Richard would say. I mean, they're very skilled. So um, I don't know if that's answered your question. I do, I do like the discipline of, of writing a good haiku in 575 because those are hard to write without sounding cluttered mm -hmm. and, and taking up a lot of space. Yeah, they, they definitely are. And I, I don't know if you're planning on reading uh, from the Unworn Necklace or not, but um, but most of the poems here are, are not 575. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I just love this book, by the way, um, the Unworn Necklace, which is right here. I think it's my it's my favorite book of haiku. It. <laughs> it has that feel of um, like, like, you know, when you watch a great movie and you have that like feeling afterward that like life has a different meaning or something like you get oh, that feeling in, in like 10 minutes. I don't know if you're supposed to read it in 10 minutes, but you can read through the book really fast and then you get this powerful feeling um, is it follows like this whole sort of novelistic arc. Um, it's just a wonderful uh, book of, of haiku. Um, but anyway, to, to, not to go on a tangent, um, that, but that book is not 575 at all. So what do you think of, as you're writing a haiku, how do you decide on the shape and the size of the lines? Well, mainly um, I think of it as a you know one-breath painting. Hmm. And to me, it's very important to evoke an emotional response in the reader. It doesn't have to be my emotional response as poet when I wrote it, but I want them to take something away from it. I want the reader to look at things a little differently after reading it or else to say, oh, somebody else has felt this too. I hear Roberta has felt something similar to it. I thought I was the only one, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's also important to me. And um, I have a poem and the unworn necklace that it's the penultimate poem haiku far from home a red-tailed hawk forgiving my father and that's one of the poems where people have said you know that they identified with that one even though they don't know what a red-tailed hawk is <laughs> or they you know they're not quite sure what a red-tailed hawk is um, and those, you know, there, there's a lot, the order of the young Worn necklace was hard for me to do. I worked on it a little bit with the editor, but mostly I brought it as is. And, um, those are hard to do, I guess, mainly with any collections, but haiku, because they're so short, it was even more difficult. So, um, thanks for, you know saying that I, I do like when people talk about the book. And I often give this book to people who say that they don't read poetry or they don't like poetry or they don't read fiction or they don't 
you know, all they read is the newspaper or they don't read. And uh, most of them seem to like it. You know, well, I mean, that's people I've had interaction with. You know, they've come to my house to do something like fix something or and, and we get to talking. I had a nice experience with this Irish um, man whom I'm still thinking we might be related, he and I, because he's from County Cork and my father's family is from County Cork. And we sort of looked alike. I gave him a copy of The Unworn Necklace and he's a, he stopped by after a few days and said how much he loved it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but that really could be. I mean, it makes a lot of sense that that's a great introduction to poetry because it's, um, it, it's it's so, I don't know, it's so condensed. It's all the emotion condensed in a way that's completely accessible and understandable too at the same time, um, and completely not intimidating either. So it's just it is a great yeah. book. So I hope everybody, so, it's still available, I think, in print. So everybody should pick up a yeah, copy. Yeah, there are copies. I think some used copies on Amazon and Snapshot Press UK. Who's the publisher? They have copies and it's in its fifth or sixth printing now it's it's like a the haiku world bestseller so <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not it doesn't happen too often with haiku books yeah. um well let's hear another uh another what do you want to read next uh before the outing which is a haiku sequence sure yeah um this one's uh dedicated to my son nathan before the outing, my son's boyfriend, three words I practice saying alone in my room. Rainbow flag, father pretends not to see. Not something that's contagious. Still, you step back from my son and his boyfriend. Rainbow flag, mother tiptoes around the subject. With knife in hand, my son's lover dissects the last white peach. Yeah, that was excellent. That was uh, uh, before the outing. Again, from deflection, and that's a great, a great poem to actually read at that point because that's kind of the feel that that the unworn necklace has, um, you know, in, in a shorter form, a smaller topic. Um, so, oh, and the questions, um, Richard Westheimer asked, um, do you nod to seasonal references in your haiku? Is that something that you think about? Because there's so many. I mean, the, the way haiku functions in, in Japan is so different than we could even wrap our right our literature around um so how do you how do you address that aspect of it well i i um you know it's i i do every so often put a seasonal word in there called kigo um sometimes a lot of people say that i write senru which is human emotion short form poetry um it's not dependent on uh seasonal words. I do have one uh, um, poem that I won a big contest in Japan in 2005, I think it was, that uh, the trip, the, the prize was a trip to Japan. And that was, that oh, was wow. a, that was a, um, a, uh, a true haiku, you know, with seasonal words. In fact, I heard from somebody that um, I I had too many season words. 
because there's such a thing, you know, you get into these rules. I, I With haiku, I don't believe in them myself, but some other people do. So the one that won the prize is in the Amor necklace. And it's called, it says, Thunder, the roses shift into shadow. Thunder, the roses shift into shadow. Mm -hmm. So when the person told me that I had I had violated the double kigo rule, and I said, but what double kigo? I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, roses and thunder. <laughs> like, I'm stupid. He had to spell it out for me. So I said, oh, okay. Well, see, I don't think that way when I write them. I just happen to be looking at roses and hearing thunder at the same time. So, so, so I guess Richard... Are Roses and Thunder the same Kigo, or are they different seasons? No, they're two different ones, you know, mm -hmm. and they might be the, of the same season, like Thunder, I think, might be his summer season word, and Roses also, but I, I don't hold me to that, because uh, I often flunk those kind of tests. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Carlton Johnson asks, how has living in Ireland affected your poetry, and who are your favorite Irish poets? Which is, a, we were talking right before we went on air, we're going to do an Irish poets issue, which is going to be a lot of fun next spring. So I'm really looking forward to that, and maybe you can introduce me to some. Um, yeah, um, well, I would have to say living in Ireland is giving me a lot more freedom to write. Um, I, I started writing longer poems as well here, um, more prose poems, and... Um, for Irish poets, um, I'm uh, in this group that called Haiku Ireland. That is kind of a nebulous group. It it's, it doesn't have like a president or you know <laughs> that kind of thing, bylaws or anything like that. And um, so some poets from that group, uh, Mavo Sullivan, who's written really great um, haiku collections, uh, Mary White. Um, who's also a haiga artist, and we work together on a project uh, bringing haiku and haiga to people from families with disabilities called the Reluctant Engagement Project. That was in Ireland. Um, Gabriel Rosenstock, who, you know, uh, written writes in, in the Irish language, writes haiku in the Irish language, writes in English, um, and has been translated all over the place and you know, has many, many awards. Uh, he's somebody I sought out on one of my visit trips, as was um, as were Maeve and Mary, you know, when I was having a look-see before we moved here. So um, uh, they're just, you know, there are poets who write haiku, and then there are haiku, and then there are, there are poets that don't write haiku living in Ireland. And I, I try to, um, you know, I try to support all of them as best as best I can. Um, I just got somebody who saw, um, I think she she saw the Janiceian, either the Janiceian Hyben or the other rattle haiku that were in the winter issue. Um, Maeve McKenna, she sent me her book. We did a book swap of, I think I sent her the Unworn Necklace and she's in Sligo and she writes um, long form poetry. So I'll give her a shout out as well. Um, well, let's hear uh, the next poem. Okay, then the next one uh, is the Janicean one, <laughs> which was part of the um, one you kindly picked for Poets Respond on January 25th. 
And that was, uh, that's called When I Read About Janice Ian, I Am the Same, Only Different. And that was in response to an article in the New York Times saying that Janice Ian was doing her final album at age 70. So I'm a Janice Ian fan, and I thought, well, maybe I can write something about that, send it off to rattle, see what happens. When I read about Janice Ian, I am the same, only different. Smoking pot in the cafeteria with my friend Susan, singing Society's Child. And I sing along, our matching flower shirts like we'd stumbled into a field of buttercups. And we're staring at a sky of blue butterflies. We don't see the gum stuck under the table, because we're stoned. And the teachers don't give a shit. And I want to be Janice Ian strumming a guitar. But today, I have piano. And when I get home, Susan's in the backyard crying. And I sneak her into my room, and her married brother bangs the front door screaming. You tell my sister, I'll beat the crap out of that guy if he ever shows up again. And Susan and I hide out all afternoon playing society's child on my big sister's stereo, careful. The needle doesn't scratch because she'd kill me. And when my sister beeps, we take the steps two at a time. And for once, she's nice and gives Susan a ride to her mom's. And the decades roll by and Susan and I lose track, but I send her my book anyway. And she calls and talks about the old days. And I tell her, Janice Ian says she's done with music and writes haiku now. And I am the same as I was that day in the cafeteria and different too, which is hard to explain but after I find Susan's address, I pencil a paper with buttercups and three lines that say, rising from the pebbled path, blue butterfly. And that was a really recent poem from Poets Respond. When I read about Janice Ian, I am the same, only different. Um, and, and one of the things um, that that this sort of brings it because, because Janice Ian's writing haiku and she, you know, reached out to you and said, thanks for writing that. And, and there's this way that like haiku, the haiku community tries to spread haiku, um, you know, yes. and, and th there's a real like sort of camaraderie in this, um, you know, attempt at, at getting more people to appreciate it. And you were the haiku ambassador who traveled different places. Where did you go? And, right. and what was that? I'm like? still the haiku ambassador. You're still the haiku ambassador. <laughs> it's kind of like, the queen of England, you know. <laughs> you don't have to call me your highness when you've been heard this is ambassador or Ms. Ambassador, but um, it got curtailed because of COVID, so it's just going to be starting up again very soon. Um, and uh, so that's through the Haiku Foundation, which Jim Cation, uh, and, uh, who's the founder of the Haiku Foundation, he and I worked this out when I decided I would be moving to Ireland. And I did travel to many countries and met with haiku poets in the first pre-COVID days for about three years. Um, I went to uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Spain, um, of course, Ireland, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales, Scotland, and England, 
and Italy, uh, Sicily. Um, and then there are many more countries. The great thing about haiku poets is when you write, you know, you find them online and you say, by the way, I'm going to be in your neck of the woods. Uh, could we, are you in a haiku group? I'd love to meet them or just meet you and have coffee. So you do have to be the kind of person that is willing to go out on a limb and, you know, take a risk and say, I'd like to meet you and talk about haiku. And some people, I, I have had several people say, um, uh, I left out Canada, but, you know, sometimes the reason I, I did, I did as well go to Canada, but when I'm thinking of some people just say, oh, I can't because I have to take my wife shopping or something. No. And that always floors me because it's somebody who writes fantastic haiku. And I give all these different options and times. But then I finally realized, I said to myself, Roberta, you are an extrovert. And not everybody is like you. And all I have to do is look at my husband, who's an introvert, Frank Stella, and get reminded of that. You know, so um, I don't, you know, take it personally. I just think, well, people have different personalities. So not everyone is dying to meet me and talk about haiku. <laughs> they would prefer to do it by email or text. So I, I wonder about the, just the logistics of trips like that. Like who, was it funded by the Haiku Foundation? How did that It wasn't work? funded by them. I said now that, you know, I retired as an attorney and, Okay, so uh, I put a little money aside and I said, what would be the best thing I could do with this money? Buy a new car? I'm really not into that kind of thing, you know? I'm not into material accoutrements. So I, I worked that out with the Haiku Foundation. I said, I'll do this as a, strictly as a volunteer. You know, it's not like I spend all my time. I mean, my husband comes with me and sometimes he, he'll take off. We'll, you know, we'll meet the poets for lunch or something, then he'll take off and then the poets and I all have, you know, more of in-depth discussion or, you know, we'll go to the museums or we'll see, we like doing literary tours. So we'll do the literary tour. I mean, it's, it's fun. You know, I, I like doing it. I'm happy to do it. And I love spreading the haiku word and the highland word. So yeah, was it the, the haiku spirit or there's some phrase, the haiku, um, the, the feel of um, camaraderie. I don't know. There's some phrase people keep, I keep hearing. Um, for, for how haiku brings people together. Is, is that, I, I'm just well, curious about that. I, like, why do you think that is? I think there's a, there's a, um, a community. It's a very open community. I mean, there are, there is infighting. I'm not saying everybody loves each other. There are these haiku feuds that go on for <laughs> general, you know, like 30 years that I've got familiar with where, um, I mean, I, I've been involved in one on the periphery because I got drawn drawn in by, you know, somebody who's like obsessed with me. But um, I try to stay out of those things as much as I can. I don't need any more dysfunction in my life. But um, the, for those who are really into the form and you can just tell by what they write that they, you know, they do have this haiku spirit of talking up other poets work, not just talking about themselves and sharing sort of like sharing the haiku limelight. Um, so it, it's, there's, I also do believe in the healing power of haiku. I wrote a couple of essays about that and there have been some other people who've written books about it that, you know, as a good way to deal with trauma or, 
grief or, you know, or uh, sexual abuse or domestic assault or violence, whatever, so many different kinds of traumas, PTSD, uh, haiku can be taught, you know, as, as, as kind of like a therapy, poetry therapy. And I have gone to schools and um, also nursing homes. That's one of the other things I like doing, is working with people with dementia. I mean, you can, once you're retired, you know, you can, um, you, there's so many options that you can do if you're somebody, you know, like I am, though, it feels like time is finite and I want to, you know, have people experience a little bit of what I've experienced and what's helped me in my life. I mean, because the, the unworn necklace is basically, it's, it's, it's a bit about my parents and their illnesses and my childhood, but a lot of it's about my marriage, my first marriage. And a lot of people come up to me and tell me, oh, you know, I thought I was the only one. And I have this one, one that they often cite is um, talking divorce. He pours his coffee than mine. Mm -hmm. That's in the unworn necklace. And a lot of people come up to me and say, I thought that 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 only happened to me. No, I thought I was only married to somebody like that. I mean, you can switch the genders too. And mm -hmm. it's not just guys are bad and women are wonderful. You know, I mean, it's yeah, the opposite yeah. can also be true. Well, good warning sign for anybody not yet married to that, that poem. Um, <laughs> so, so one thing I just always ask um, haiku poets when we have haiku poets on is, is why do you think haiku isn't as appreciated among the sort of mainstream it's so funny that there is a mainstream poetry <laughs> community well some of them do look you know like Paul Muldoon and Billy Collins um, write haiku and Billy Collins and I, and I have met at his book signings and talked about haiku and he for a while he was sending them into modern haiku i don't know what happened with that i think they switched out editors or something mm -hmm. but he has a book um that modern haiku press published called she was just 17 and now it's a collector's item worth i think it's worth between 500 and a thousand dollars so oh, if, wow. you, if you're lucky enough to have one of those um it was a limited run edition um but i think there's this false sense that they're because they're short they're easy to write mm -hmm. and then um you'll see you know i at modern haiku i get hyphen from what we call mainstream poets and they it's kind of awkward because a lot of them don't know how to write haiku so and i have to reject them um you know i, I mean i have to be true to the as an editor, which I'm sure you understand, it doesn't matter how famous the name is. If they're, the poem doesn't work, it doesn't work, you know, and you can't, you can't fix, you can't fix a haiku that's broken. I mean, sometimes the first two lines will be okay. And the third line needs a little tweaking and I can help with that. But if it's just from the get go uh, on life support, you know, then I can't fix it. So I, I'm not sure. I guess it's a bit of um, not understanding the form, not being exposed to it or learning it, having it forced down your throat in grade school or elementary school and thinking it's just nature poems that, you know, there's some of them rhyme. You know, I've seen my class classes studying 
Japanese in translation to English, and it's rhyming haiku, which is just like <laughs> an abomination, <laughs> you know, or with or with punctuation with a sentence for the period and reading like a sentence. Mm-hmm. So I think it's partially what they experienced when they were younger, and um, I, I'm not sure. You know, writing is risk taking, and not everybody is willing once they get well known in a certain form. They're not comfortable risking to try a new form and get it wrong, you know, which is always a possibility. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Um, a few years ago, somebody, I won't say who it was, but they were, they were talking to me and they were very upset because that they said Poetry Magazine finally published haiku and it's not even haiku. <laughs> and um, it, it's just... I don't know. It feels like haiku is just the essence of what poetry does. It's like poetry's sort of mission in one little nugget. That's what a haiku, when it works, does. So, so that's why I always love haiku, and um, and that's why we always publish it when you know when we can. Um, do you want? Well, to- yeah, you're you're definitely one of the good guys as far as um, editors that get haiku. You know, which you're in a in a very select. Uh, you know, I can sort of count on one hand, I won't name names, but uh, not too many uh, high tier poetry journals are open to haiku. Some are, mm-hmm. and some um, are open to high bun without knowing that that's what they are. And I do know several poets, haiku poets, that write high bun and send it in or write sequences and we'll send it into some of these other journals and not call it a high bun or they won't call it a haiku sequence mm. and it will get published oh, because they're good because they're good writers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they've balanced um, getting their work out there with getting the form down and they've, they've chosen to get their work out there, but the rest of us recognize it. Um, you know, high bun's being written by, uh, you know, Kimiko Han has a whole book of haiku. I, I think she called it The Narrow Road to the North. And um, uh, Forrest Gander, I'm not sure I have his name right, um, has written mm-hmm. a book of haibun. So poets that normally write in other forms, every so often now you'll see in a collection there's a haibun in there. Yeah. And that's that's becoming more and more prevalent. Interesting. Well, we have uh, two poems left. Do you want to read another one? Uh, yeah, this is the first one that you accepted for me, Haibun, um, Genetics. And interestingly enough, when you did that, I heard from a bunch of um, guy haiku poets who told me that not only had I not written a haiku, I hadn't written a Haibun, <laughs> but I... <laughs> When I hear stuff like that, I just say, you know, to each his own. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, so I want to thank you for publishing this one back in the spring of 2015. It was in Rattle, issue 47 on Japanese forms, genetics. Your eyes are big and round like your father's. But while his are the color of the Irish sea, yours are the color of the muddy fields on my father's land, fit only for the peasants who worked them. Abortion day, a shadow flutters the fish tank. 
Yeah, I just love that. That's genetics. And uh, I don't, that, that, that haiku at the end there just like punches you in the face. <laughs> and that is one of the, the biggest contrasts. Like, it's so unexpected. Um, and, and so, you nominated that one for a push card, which I still thank you for. Oh, I did. Well, I'm not surprised because I, I, I just love that one. That's so, so striking. It really is. I mean, striking is the right word. Um, I do remember also hearing from another guy poet saying, you were nominated for push card, but don't worry, you won't win because heaven never wins. <laughs> I was like, thanks. Uh, I'll take that as a congratulations. <laughs> Um, so let's see. T.R. Paulson asks, um, she says, I read somewhere that good gazals or gazals or guzzles. I never know how you're supposed to say it. Um, and uh, good haiku, um, have a lot in common craft wise. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I do not because I cannot write that other form to which you are referring. I am so sorry. <laughs> I have tried my best, but, um, that's a whole other thing. And, uh, Nope, but there is a, a community out there and of people who write both that you could probably find online. <laughs> um, so just in case anybody hasn't sort of figured it out yet or doesn't still doesn't understand it after um so what would you how would you define a haiku? Like what is the essence? Like what makes something a haiku versus something that doesn't work as a haiku? Well, maybe I can I'd like to read the the haiku that are just been published. Mhm. If that's okay, sure, because yeah. and then I can maybe talk about it because they're all different. Um, so these were published in issue um, seventy-four, the winter one, um, and the title. So you call them six haiku, but really they're untitled. So they're they're not connected. In other words, broken vein of a heart-shaped leaf, memorial bench. Across the great divide, heron and I. Hospital lab, an unknown cluster of paper cranes. Monsoon over, moss covers mother's maiden name. Season of light, the soldier hands me a folded flag. Bedtime cocoa, I unfriend the ghost of Christmas past. So in answer to your question, Tim, I'd like to talk about just one of these, season of light, the soldier hands me a folded flag. So that is um, really about my very good friend, whose husband died um, right when I arrived in Japan, I flew back for his funeral and he had been a Marine in Viet Vietnam. And the image of the Marine at his funeral, handing my friend the folded flag stayed with me, has stayed with me since, you know, early 1990, I think it was December, 1990. And, um, so what can haiku do? I didn't know what to do with this. It's well of emotion that around every Christmas, you know, around the day he died, I would remember that image. I would remember that scene. And I wanted to distill it in a way that would honor him and honor my friend, you know, honor their marriage. And uh, so 
and also make it a, a, a decent haiku, you know, what I call a quality haiku, which is what I strive to write each time. So for the, the, the Christmas elements, you know, since it's really hard, you know, when somebody dies around the Christmas season, it's in line one season of light. And I didn't quite remember until my friend reminded me that it was a, he was a Marine, uh, a soldier, but um, season of light and soldier, you know, the two S sounds and hands me, I thought those went well together. There was a certain musicality, hands me a folded flag. So it's, it's to describe, this is one of those haiku that I was talking about, the healing power of haiku. Mm-hmm. To me, it's, um, you can almost see that as a, as a, a one breath painting. You know, if you see like Christmas lights or what they call here fairy lights uh, in Ireland and a funeral and the soldier handing somebody, you know, the, 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 grie- the grieving person, the, the folded flag. So that's that one right there, that haiku that I just read and talked about, that to me is what haiku is and what it does and what it can do. And you don't have to be, you know, in the military or have any military experience to to feel something when you hear that poem. I mean, most people have suffered some kind of loss, you know, even children. And uh, and that I want my what I want for my haiku is for it to speak to somebody in a way that makes sense to them, not in a way that makes sense to me, and that somehow helps them. You know, so mm-hmm. I do believe in the haiku is is helpful to people, not just writing it, but hearing it. And it's just so many things, you know. I and one one of the books about haiku that um, Millican Press put out. I, I think I'm quoted in there saying it's the best free drug in the world, <laughs> you know, haiku, and that's kind of how I think of it. I mean, you don't you don't need to self medicate when you have haiku. <laughs> That's just my feeling. Um, so, one last question, and then one last uh, one last hyphen. Uh, Vicky Miko asks, "What are your thoughts on non traditional or experimental haiku, such as uh, one or two word haiku or dialogue or rhyming haiku that you mentioned the blasphemy of it?" Um, so, what do you think about that? There is a lot of experimentation, like the you know the one word tundra. Um, there's things like that. Yeah, there's tundra. There's. Um, I mean, you can do it. There. You know, when you get poems about writing, Tim, mm-hmm. there's a certain niche group that they write about writing. And there's a certain niche group in haiku that used to write about writing. And now they write these. To, some of them, to me, are I don't, having a clue. I don't know what they're about. <laughs> so I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask um, about experimental Haiku, I mean, I must, I've written some just to challenge myself. Um, uh, but they're, they're more for the effect. You know, they're, when I, the ones I've written are kind of for the shock effect. Mm-hmm. I know that people play around with language in haiku and uh, they do concrete poems. But I, there is a debate going on now in the haiku community among academics and 
what I call the lay practitioners of the art of haiku. Um, some people think these experimental haiku have just gotten completely unable to be understood and nobody knows what they mean. And it's kind of like the emperor's wearing no clothes, which is how I first thought of them when I read them, you know, and started reading these great reviews of these collections. And I would open them up and say, I just, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe it's me. Maybe I've aged out of this. I don't know. So uh, um, that's kind of what I think of them. I think it's, you know, it's, they're okay to do once in a while, especially to challenge yourself as a writer. And I've done them and I've, I've gotten them to, I think, be effective because if I'm not going to write something, I don't understand mm -hmm. myself. But um, as a form that, you know, where you see these collections, or you see these anthologies or whatever, I, I just, I, I don't think they're making, I'm not saying haiku should be all about accessibility to the widest possible audience because I don't feel that either, mm -hmm. but I don't think it should be restrictive. It's already a, a small community in the greater, you know, in the poetry is a small community. And then within the small community of poetry, then you have haiku, which is even smaller. So I, I feel we should be, we should be more inclusive, you know, not mm -hmm. exclusive and bringing more people to the haiku word, spreading the haiku word. And that's to me, not the way to do it. Yeah. But that's it, just my, that's just my opinion. Yeah. It, it feels like haiku span a sort of a continuum from like feeling to, to language or something like some play with language more and some, and some try to evoke the feeling of a little moment more. And, and it feels like yours definitely lean toward more toward the feeling end of that. I might, you know, challenge myself to write something like Tundra mm -hmm. if I can find one and not be accused of stealing from somebody else. <laughs> because the other thing with haiku is so many of them are, are similar mm -hmm. that I've seen many poems since the Unworn Necklace has been published that mimic what's in here. In fact, somebody attacked me on Twitter like five years ago for a poem that another person had written that copied mine. Oh, yeah. And then I, I I responded in a private message saying, no, I wrote this in 2007 and he wrote it in, you know, 2013 or something. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote, <laughs> instead of putting something, correcting it, the person wrote, yes, there's a lot going on in the cyberspace of the haiku world zeitgeist or something another oh, thing that i could, couldn't understand what that meant yeah retro causal plagiarism or something interesting right um well we want to finish up with your last poem uh, lunch break yeah this was um published in rattles tribute to poets with mental illness this was another risky thing that i wrote because um you know that for a long time mental illness was a taboo subject I personally think that we all have a little bit of mental illness in us. Um, so it's not a subject that is taboo for me at all. Uh, lunch break. The fridge is empty, which means someone stole my sandwich and stuck me with this blueberry yogurt. Expiration date two weeks ago. Who stole my lunch? Or is it home? Retrace my steps. Retrace. Did I take my lunch off the counter? I'm not sure. I was in a hurry. I set the alarm. Remember setting the alarm. Did I lock the door? I'm sure I did. I set the alarm and locked the door. 
My stomach is making weird noises. I'm starving. A slightly dated yogurt should be okay. Or maybe not. I might get sick. Salmonella, E. coli. I know the symptoms, fever, diarrhea, abdominal cramps. I'm feeling queasy. It's this yogurt staring at me. I'll move it behind the baking soda where no one looks. If I'm not careful, this job will kill me. It really will kill me. I remember setting the alarm. Did I lock the door? I'm sure I did. I'm sure. Black fly on the cutting board. Last night's dream. Yeah, wonderful poems and, and great discussion today. Thanks so much, Roberta, for joining us uh, from Ireland and, and sharing uh, Tim. Yeah, the haiku spirit with everybody here. Thanks. Yep, have a good night. Thanks, you Yes, yeah, so that was Roberta Beery um, with her... Let's see, her most recent book is Deflection, but like we mentioned, she has another book forthcoming. And, um, and The Unworn Necklace was here as well. Um, so now we're going to go to the open lines, and this is the part where you're going to have to bear with me because I am um, using Zoom for the first time for the open lines, and I don't know how this is going to go. We're also going to have two guests. We're going to have um, today's poet. Um, we're going to have tomorrow's poet as well, uh, Remus Uzgiris, and... Um, and David Oates has a poem for tomorrow, too. And hopefully they'll be joining us in a little bit through Zoom as well. So what I'm going to do is open up Zoom to everybody who wants to join. And I'll put the link in the chat windows on YouTube and Facebook. You can go there. You can also call the number and type in the, um, the meeting code, I guess. And, and we'll see if that works. If not, if, if there's anybody left at the end of this uh, open mic who can't get to... Uh, share the poem that wants to. You can still use Skype and, and call in over the phone. Um, but for now, let's try to use um, let's try to use Zoom and see how that works. Um, I'm going to go to a quick uh, break and stand up and stretch, and I will be right back as I get this stuff all set up. we're back thanks so much for your patience anybody who's still watching and not participating in the open mic you can still watch on facebook or youtube stream um we have today's poet here remus Uzgiris, and let's uh join him let me see if i can you say hello remus hello hi yeah there nice you go so now you're, it's great to see you so uh so how you doing how are things and you're in lithuania right i am indeed yes i'm in vilnius right now uh things are okay um we're uh we're a little worried uh, for sure and, and nervous and uh, a little stressed. And uh, my friends on Facebook are following everything very closely and uh, sending out lots of information. I have friends who know Ukrainian and Russian very well, and they're, they're really digging out lots of information and getting news from, from friends in Ukraine. Uh, so I've been, I've been following it quite a bit, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and so this poem, My Country's Wounds, is an interesting poem in that it's a, it's a sort of a semi-quasi-translation um, of Olena Harris-Smyuk. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but um, a, a poet in Ukraine. Can you explain a little bit how the poem came to be and, and how you know Olena um, and, and all that? 
Yes. Well, I mean, it's a weird thing. I, I don't usually do this. I'm a translator and a poet. And, uh, and of course, when I translate, uh, I'm all, usually translating living authors, and I'm trying to be very close to what they're doing. Uh, in this case, I don't know Ukrainian, and I wanted to write something about what was happening, and I kept thinking of Olena's poem, which I had heard in the fall. She had come to our Druskininka International Festival, uh, and she had read there as part of the Versopolis Poetry Project, uh, European project uh, that I'm a part of, too, and, and she her reading was phenomenal. Uh, she read Prison Chant, as it's called in English, and... Uh, and uh, the, the Lithuanian translation is phenomenal, too, and I really followed that closely. Uh, and uh, I kept thinking of it, and I, I looked back at it, and uh, I, I realized there's images and, and uh, certain set pieces in it, uh, especially in the beginning, that felt I felt really spoke to the present situation. The whole poem as a whole, I mean, it, it deals with the 2014 invasion uh, because she from East Ukraine. Uh, she worked and does work now in a hospital battalion. Uh, so she's been really involved uh, close to the fighting. And, uh, uh, and, and the poem deals also with the, the aftermath, the polit political situation, references, you know, the, the minister and, and other events about a, a murder of a journalist and a trial of nationalists. And it, it's actually very hard for us outside of Ukraine to understand. And, and I talked to the translator about it a bit. And, and even he who knows so much about Ukraine said, you know, there's things in there I don't really get, you know, and uh, and I felt like uh, but there's images there that I really want to use somehow. And, and so I, I started rewriting parts of it um, in, in, in making a lyric out of it and seeing what I felt needed to be done to make a short lyric that spoke to the present uh, war. And, uh, and I did that. And, uh, and I, don't, I don't know. And I, call, I finally got in touch with Olena, the poet. Mm -hmm. um, and it was hard at first because she's, you know, busy, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and she gave her blessing and, and, and said, thank you. And, you know, of course, I'm thankful to her. Um, and uh, she's the inspiration for the, the, the poem uh, for my version of it uh, mm -hmm. comes from her. Uh, and I've reworked it. And uh, I'm glad she's okay with it. So. Yeah, yeah. And glad that she's okay for the moment uh, right now. You know, I think you, you said you heard from her yesterday, right? Uh, yes, yes. Last night. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's just, a, it's a beautiful poem. Another, another one. Um, there's, there's just so much to, you know, to write about here. We, like I mentioned, we had, um, almost 500 submissions and most were about the situation in the, in Ukraine. Um, do you want to go ahead and read this? My country's wounds. Sure. <clears throat> Uh, the epigraph is, uh, gives credit to her, adapted and redacted from prison chant by Olena Heresimyuk, serving in a hospital battalion somewhere in Ukraine now. My country's wounds. He looks at me long, a kind of longing. He says, the most important thing is love. He looks at me long, oh, his kind of longing. He says, the most important thing is to love thine enemy, who steals, who even steals your history along with your land. So don't shoot, he says. No, don't shoot, he says. Just lay down your arms, slowly. Just raise your white arms, 
high. Raise them up high like a chalice, like a prayer. And then you will know, yes, as your blood sprinkles fire on the low ground, you will know the true taste of love. And there will be no war, fire. And there will be no war. I open the window. Fire flies in on the air. I cross the square. Fire fingers the stone. I walk through the city and hide like a mole in its holes. And there it is beside us, fire. And here it is inside us, fire. I close my eyes and I can see fire. My faith, my honor, all fires. My country's memory, my bleeding wound, cauterize it with fire. And I will go on. I walk through walls. I eat the air. I never stop, never stop fire. Yeah, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for writing and sharing that and and giving us that insight. Um, I really appreciate it and, and so glad you could join us today. Thank you, Tim. It was a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, we'll have to have you on as a, as a main guest sometime. That'd be interesting. I would love that. That would be uh, beautiful. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Let's, uh, let's go to... Um, actually, David Oates is here, so, so we'll ask David to unmute. Um, hello, David. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, nice it's great to see you. On the screen, I've been seeing your name as editor for so many years. <laughs> well, well, same here. It's one of those. I think this is—is is this the first time we've published you? Yes. Oh well, yeah. I just—I yes. love this poem, um, and this is quite a different take on um, the the crisis in Ukraine from the first two that we published. I love to, tr- to publish a variety of things, and this was such an interesting, <laughs> such an interesting perspective, um, and and a great central metaphor. No one's seen this poem yet. Um, it's um, let me pull it up. But can you describe a little bit about, about how it came to be? I mean, the, the poem sort of tells itself how it came to be, but I don't know how accurate that is. It, it, actually, it's, it's uh, mostly nonfiction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was stewing in the same puddle of time that we all are, which is that when history starts to unroll, um, it is no fun. We've certainly discovered that multiple times in the last four or five years that um, I'm a student of history. It's the way I understand being alive. Mm -hmm. But boy, it's also easy when you know what the outcome is ahead of time. It's easy to read the story of World War II or the Civil War or the labor struggle of the the late 19th century when you know what the outcome is, Mm -hmm. you know, how, how it comes and to what extent the good guys win and to what extent the bad guys win. And it's all set. But when it's unrolling around you, we have all had this feeling of profound unease and, uh, I don't know, the general fucked upness mm-hmm. of being a human being in the stream of time uh, when pretty much anything might be coming at you next. So that feeling of dislocation, of, of bewilderment, of discomfort um, informs the poem which is mostly about just the details, the, the, the granular details of that morning when the, uh, the invasion was on the news and it was new to, news to me. And I'm just going through my daily routine thinking, oh my God, what does this mean? And how does it put to, fit together? And in the moment, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. You really don't. 
Yeah, yeah, that's what what's so interesting about the poem is it's so so humble and honest about about our own ignorance, which is something that you don't see come up very often. All right, I'm using that clip. Humble and honest. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna lay claim to that. Uh, let's just pretend that's true. So <laughs> well, the voice, the speaker's voice, Thank I you. guess. So so this is not yeah. enough to not enough to ski on. Now, do you want to go ahead and read it? I do, I do indeed. It's a slightly longer than average poem for lyric poetry. Not enough to ski on. This morning, as Ukraine was invaded, I shaved my neck while listening to ancient Orthodox music with beards and icons on the illustration, Russian saints, and astonishing harmonies, deep, slow, apparently permanent. And I noticed that I needed to clean out the dirty soap dish on the sink. What an odd thing, I thought, a filth of cleanliness. Anyway, what is Russia? What I know is next to nothing. It's big, but kind of useless, right? What does the world buy from a nation of angry alcoholics and wife beaters and wives who are beaten and who admire the strongman leader? I've always remembered a line from Gogol, or maybe it was Chekhov. He beat her right in the stomach like a hero. When you know as little as I do, it's hard to think. I remember Khrushchev beating his shoe on the lectern at the UN, his bad teeth and peasant body. Peasant mind too, I guess. I knew about Ukrainian farmers killed by Stalin because anti-communist conservatives mentioned them all the time. What else? Amazing novels and music. How the heck does that happen? I looked it up a few years ago. Russia's economy is smaller than Italy's, below Canada's, below South Korea's. How can such a place be a great power? A great power? I guess the collapse was because they couldn't afford it. But here we are, 30 years later, same script. Oh, then let us fear the Russians. Let us rue them and oppose them and mock their shirtless machismo. What their point is, we don't know. Or what we offer instead. Oh, and as a sign to poets, it's snowing as I write. Late February, weird. Fluffy, pretty, symbolic, but not enough to ski on. Later, I'll walk over to the little Orthodox church with its wee silver dome and signage in Korean. I went inside once and the walls were whited out and all the icons and strange double crosses taken out. I don't know anything about Korean Baptists either, but I don't like them too. I am an all-purpose bigot, Catholic in, my in the range of my disdain. I can't figure out why the world works this way, that evangelists whose noisy ignorance failed so completely with me should go to Korea and find success. Really, how the heck? 
And how do soap dishes get dirty? And why does Russian music make me feel sad and joyous all at the same time? My close shaved dyspepsia offers no insight into this world. My poetry will never appear on a syllabus at Moscow U, if there is one. I don't know why some are beaten while others are cheering. America won the Cold War. What temperature will this one be? The lukewarm war, maybe. We'll install tepid little dictators worldwide to support the effort, then forget them. When I get lost while writing, I ask, what is the poem of this poem? So maybe the question here is, what is the war of this war? Who has been dying unnoticed? Who made millions out of it? What's the secret of this overt thing? What soap is its filth? Questions like this vanish in a day or two. What I know mostly is that I don't know. Not enough to ski on. I won't make famous novels of it, nor all-night vigils. What we won, that we will lose. Suffering covers everything until later when it doesn't. We will come out from hiding and cleanse our wisdom with afterthoughts of great seemliness. All the while, wishing for beauty and harmony. That alone is deep, slow, and apparently permanent. Yeah, beautiful, moving poem with so many great lines for such a long conversational piece. I just love that, David. Uh, and, and thanks for, for joining us today. It's really cool to see you. It's lovely to see you too. Thank you. Yeah, take care. Okay. So that was uh, David Oates again with Not Enough to Ski On, which is going to be tomorrow's poem, or Monday's poem on rattle.com. And now let's see. So we have left. We have a, still a whole bunch of people, still a dozen people left to share poems. I realized I forgot to do um, mine and Megan's prompt poems as well. So I'll do that. Then I'll move to the, uh, the rest of the open lines here. And uh, so once again, the prompt, which I forgot to mention, the prompt was to was uh, it's the year 2222 what kind of world do we live in write a poem about it and so um so it, it, this this poem you're going to think is about nuclear war probably given what's going on but actually the thing that worries me about um the future moving ahead is um the geomagnetic excursion and solar weather cuz i think it's going to wipe out our uh, <laughs> wipe out all of our circuits at some point and um, and we'll be back to hunter gatherers almost. And so this is what my uh, this is my message from the Mojave twenty two twenty two, and um, and it's a sonnet. It's actually the first time in a couple of years. I used to write sonnets all the time, and lately I've been having trouble. But this uh, this one pulled you know pulled the poem through itself the way a good sonnet does, where it sort of like helps you in the writing process for the first time in a while. So this is a message from the Mojave twenty two twenty two. The grizzly's back, the wolves are back, the river lays its slender back across an ancient riverbed. Spring thaw, grasses shiver in the wet wind, 
You are not a patient people. More souls than all the stars that spill upon the midnight sky, the elders say. More stuff per man than any man can pull. More guns than men. But then you went away. Now the cattle kick up what remains of what you were. We're in no rush to find it. Closer to the sea, your empty metal trees still reach at what they used to reach. The stains of lines so sure and straight. We never mind it when they fall, but can't help note the ease. So that is Message from the Mojave, 2022. And this is Megan's poem. And this one, if you remember last week, it was to write um, a poem about an ancestor. And, and Megan didn't, didn't come up with a poem for that week. And so this is a letter. It's sort of like both prompts. This is a letter from an ancestor um, in the future from 2022 to now. 2222. It's so hard to say that. So this is Megan's poem, Letter to an Ancestor. Letter to an Ancestor. They say you coaxed food from soil. Peppers the color of the desert sun. Berries bright as winter birds. I saw a photograph of you. You smiled, but your body was broken. Your blood a polluted river. The math of your heart fixed and finite. You would be proud to know that I go on and on. No droughts or disease to stop me. The love you were blinded by, a blade tucked into my belt. Our children are neurotransmitters, crossing a synaptic cleft the way your children used to cross a log bridge, delicately with, and with purpose. Sometimes I'd like to see their hands plunge into the pregnant dirt, find something to sink their teeth into. But then I remember your children were covered with that dirt too. There are no graves anymore. They say you had music. Often, while we work, we sing a song we know the words to, but we don't know how we know them or why. There's Megan's uh, singularity poem, Letter to an Ancestor. And, um, okay, so let's go back to the open lines and see who should we talk to next. Let's talk to uh, Sharon Ferrante. I'm going to ask Sharon to unmute. Hey, Sharon, how are you doing today? I think I just unmuted. You yeah. did. This is working really well, I have to say. Um, I actually, believe it or not, or maybe you can believe it, I had a dream last night where I was trying to do this Skype stuff in the middle of the show, and it was like weird things were falling out of the <laughs> sky because I was pushing the wrong buttons and stuff. Um, so it was one of those anxiety dreams. But it actually, it's going great. Oh. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I'm definitely finding it easier. I just is once you put the link, it just tap on it and you can get in. You know. Awesome. Well, we're gonna we'll do it this way from now on. So, what is it that okay. you have to share? Well, I have a prompt poem, and Roberta was great. Thank thank you and her for that. That interview was awesome. Yeah, I love I love Roberta. It, She's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I did the twenty two twenty two. Mm-hmm. And the, it was fun. Yeah. The poem is called, it was the year 2222. A lonely star in need of friends, guessed at it. I decided to go back to earth, catch up on things. Time was floating with melting hands and feet. Like that one starfish I saved. The drowning continent chasers had all the phones and PCs stacked up in their submarines. 
I heard the angels would come too. It was their year, their number, turning into mermaids stuck in a tornado made of water. I head out in my capsule, the one that grows fins. I visit the starfish, the mermaid, the angel, my mother. Oh, beautiful poem. I'm loving this prompt. I, you know, as a fan of um, science fiction and thinking of the future, it's a really fun one. Yeah, I took it somewhere like I was visiting Earth from somewhere else. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was fun cool. to write. Yeah, thanks thank for sharing you. that, Sharon. And I was so glad to, to be able to see you, too. You, too. Thank you. Okay, so Sharon's going to mute herself, and then we will go next to... Now let's go instead to um, Bev Wendell Atherstone. So I asked Bev to unmute. Hey, Bev. Hi. Yeah, how are you doing today? Great. Now you finally get to see how I look. Excellent. Yeah, it's really nice to see it. So I, I'm just, Zoom is great. I I was such a, a, a an opponent of Zoom for when I found out how the how the software worked in the early days. <laughs> so now it's nice to be, be on board the Zoom train. Uh, yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah, I was working on a poem about um, the invasion of Ukraine, but um, it was too much, so I couldn't finish it. And I just loved your guest's uh, poem, the uh, the erasure poem. That mm -hmm. was that was just terrific. That was terrific, and um, and the one earlier um, on Zoom that was that was quite a lyrical poem as well. So anyway. Um, <clears throat> Speaking of bullying and uh, Putin, mm -hmm. <laughs> I just thought I'd continue along on the bullying theme. So I have a sonnet for today. Okay. Behavioral dilemma. Is this worse than straps across the bottom? Unseen welts felt only by the victim. Abuse, emotional, it's malice, so fine. It sears the brain until the end of time. From what well does parental abuse arise? From fear of failure in the culture's eyes? Jealousy of the child's many talents? Bad modeling by their own parents? Reliving old myths of sparing the rod? Religious beliefs to kill the devil inside? Or releasing our anger on someone small who cannot retaliate at all. We love holding on to bad behavior, even knowing tossing it is our savior. Excellent, Bev. Love that final couplet, too. And yeah, there's definitely some psychological stuff going on for sure. Thanks for sharing that. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, so um, let's go next to... Um, yeah, I can just mute people. That's really cool. Okay, this works great. So let's see. Um, there was a Melissa, who I think is a first-time first time joiner, first-time open micer. So I asked Melissa to unmute. Hey, Melissa, how you doing? I'm good. How are you all? Great. And so this is Melissa who? Uh, Slattery. Slattery. Yeah, great. To, thanks so much for joining us today. Do you have a poem to share? I see it right here. The Grapevines of Valentina. Yeah. Uh, it's a, um, 
a Ukraine uh, poem based on uh, a photograph by a, a woman photographer. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lindsay Dario, and she's there now. And uh, I'll just read. Yeah, go ahead. I'll put it on screen for everybody watching. The grapevines of Valentina. Unlike you, Valentina, I can almost not look, but something makes me the image of you. I can feel the cold winter air around you, or I imagine I can. I see scars of snow and muddy edges jumbled together beneath those vines. I see the vines stripped now of leaves because it is winter, but you have carefully propped them up with poles placed precisely across your backyard, metal poles, substantial and delineated like you. The vines too are thick vines twisted together in gracefully trained bundles, substantial vines that took years to grow Perhaps your husband, the winemaker, has tended them every season and still makes a few gallons to share with your children and your children's children. And I imagine in summer, the green grape leaves overlapping in vegetal layers above your garden, forming a living roof, a shade screen, with summer light passing through from morning till evening, casting flickering green shadows across the faces of your grandchildren. And now we can see that someone has decided to shell your backyard, someone aiming artillery across the border, also imagined. And someone has come into your backyard and is snapping a photo of you with your hand resting, no pressing, pressing the pain away from your cheek. Your thick eyelashes extend away from your eyes, the muscles in your neck still strong, now strain with the looking, the witnessing, and I also witness, witness the nape of your neck and your soft right ear Grandmother pink and thick, I can see you have long lobes, which some believe indicate a long life, almost like the Buddhist earlobes. Your snow-white short hair is freshly clipped and clean against your neck. Your simple chain necklace holds a metal we cannot see. The vine above your head reminds me of another victim. His crown of thorns wound round his head like your vines. The grapevines have no thorns. I am so sorry that your garden is destroyed and you are 72. And all you want is peace, not mud and mess and broken bodies. For what all this? Sorry oligarchs and billionaires making their corrupt deals, buying each other off. Their hands will stay clean throughout 
While you gaze at your grapevines, wondering if green shadows will ever dance across your grandchildren's faces again. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful poem. Great descriptive details. Thanks so much for sharing that, Melissa. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, that was Melissa Slattery with great, The Grapevines of Valentina. And uh, let me see if I can pull up the picture. So I should say, too, if everybody um, who has already read, if you want to jump back to YouTube so you can read along with the poems, um, the, the poems are on screen on YouTube or Facebook. I think this might be the photo that, um, that this was about. So I'll put that on screen, too. Um, there. Yeah, yeah, very moving photo and very moving poem. So thanks so much for sharing that, Melissa. And, um, okay, so, so let's go now to, um, and let's go to, let's go to Mike Bales. I click the. Hello, um, I'm glad not to be a mystery where people can actually see me. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool to see you. So, so the people who didn't, you know, were Skype averse, and so now I get to see you. It's great to see you for the first time, Mike. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to have to have a friend of mine watch this on YouTube, Mary Jo Balistieri from Oh yeah, I know uh, that name. Yeah, Milwaukee area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she has haiku published everywhere, and she'll have to watch this episode. Yeah, for sure. So, so let's see, Mike. Did you email your poem in, or are you just going to read it? Um, I support respond thing. Uh, okay, let me pull we it get, up then. You know, if we get it down right, there's a screen share thing, which I can't always do either. But that way, if we ever get the screen share thing down, then people could read the poems yeah, along I think with it, us reading. That, that I, um, if I if I just show the poem while you read, then you don't have to worry about it, and everybody can sort of be on the same level of getting their poems shown. So I think I'm going to keep just doing it the way I've done it. So let That's me just, fine. Yeah, let me just pull up. So, so as I pull this up, why don't you explain what news um, item this poem is about? Um, it's about our sad topic this week. I was actually on the way to read poems that in open mic and as the Russian invasion was going on and I've heard stuff over the last couple of weeks. I wanted to go back to the specific coverage of Ukraine like a couple of weeks ago when they're carrying on um, like things are perfectly normal, like the war was going to happen. But I, and I might want to keep writing about the war, but I know, but I've discovered a long time ago that good poetry can be about character. Mm -hmm. So I just, anything I write about this war, I think I want to write about like the average villagers. They'd be the ones kind of hit. Oh, yeah, for so sure. So it's kind of about a rehearsal for the war, average villagers. And this is called With the Heart of a Villager. Okay, I've got it up. Go ahead. Under the illusion of open skies, a mother took your five-year-old underground to practice sheltering for an anticipated storm. She said that any day the sky may rain bombs and death, although the streets are clear. She made the exercise a game as he wrapped around his frame a security blanket bought from the man who owned the corner store. She told her son to tuck and covered his head, although he'd never seen the terrors witnessed by his great-grandparents. The mother with the heart of a villager bore the weight of violence long known, stories told by her mother's mother, their homeland torn and parceled by their sisters and brothers who marched across the border. She, she told him he must be they must be ready for a, great, for a threat greater than his mind could bear. But she said, 
Mom and Poppy still love you, as if words alone could save him from the, from senseless rage. She opened her arms and sent her son to the park, where children gathered and played, where winds sang freedom song, even as lines in the sand were drawn. Yeah, excellent. Love the internal line there. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Great poem as always. All right. Okay, thanks. Yeah, and good to see you too. Okay, so that was Mike Bales, and um, let's go next. We have, um, hmm, so Diane's not here, and neither was um, Jeffrey Littlejohn. I think, let's see, we'll go to Richard Westheimer then. Hey, hey Tim. Yeah, hey, Dick, how you doing? Good. Um, gl I'm glad this is working for you. There are a couple things missing for us that perhaps we'll figure out how to do. One is following the poems. I've got two screens going here. so that Yeah, I yeah. Can... what I'm thinking is that people can just sort of pop onto Zoom, you know, gradually and then just go back to YouTube. Um, and then and then you can see the poems. I don't know if that's too much trouble, but but we'll see. Because if, if you screen share, then you'll, you can't see you. Um, right. I don't know. And the YouTube is the thing that stays forever for like people to watch. You know, they watch those years later. So um, I don't know. So we'll we'll see. But I think you can just sort of come in, share a poem, and then go back to where you were watching it before. I think that's the way it would work pretty well. Um, yeah, well, uh, the the other thing that is, you know, I hope we can figure out a way to recreate is there's this running sort of community dialogue on YouTube, at least, mm -hmm. of people appreciating each other's poems and talking about them, you know, noting about them afterwards. But yeah, for we'll sure. That's, what, that's why I'm hoping people just go back to YouTube. So hopefully that can sort of be how we do it. Um, but, but we'll see. Um, I don't know. That, that's the thing. That's the one, one of the reasons too, that I didn't want to do, I, I resisted the switch to zoom, but, um, but every guest we've had, like every main guest, it says like, I really need Skype. Do I have to really download Skype? And, <laughs> right. and so finally I got tired of doing that and everybody just zooms now. So, um, um, well, I'll read. Um, um, I did send a, a little tiny poem about the nuclear threat, but I think I'll read the one about uh, a Ukrainian woman confronts a Russian soldier in Henschek. Okay, should I find that on uh, on the submissions? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah, no problem. Um, okay, yeah, I see it here, and, and I don't know how much. Is there any introduction that this poem needs? Um. Just, uh, it's in the epigraph, which is uh, that a Ukrainian, you know, there, there are lots of little tiny snippets of courageous things going on. And the one that struck me was um, a Ukrainian woman standing before a patrolling soldier and offering him a handful of sunflower seeds. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that was powerful, um, a powerful thing. Um, there was a poem in and of itself. I kind of felt badly messing with it. Um, and yeah. So anyway, so this is a Ukrainian woman confronts a Russian soldier in Henschek after Jericho Brown's duplex. That's the other thing I should say is I tr I've tried to find a container that contained my sort of out of control emotions. And so I sort of first chose a sonnet and then I said, I need it even tighter than that. And so um, I used uh, the duplex form, which is the lines of the first line of a couplet um, echoes in sort of some sort of contrary way the line that ended the couplet before. So, for instance, you see uh, the word die in the first couplet, and in the second couplet, you have living. Mm -hmm. So, oh, okay, yeah, I've seen um, I've seen this duplex form. You know, people submit them, and I'm I never looked up the rules, so I'm actually not quite sure uh, what, what the rules are. Um, 
So it's just this sort of reflective revert. It, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's an unsettling, it's very unsettling, which yeah. seemed to me to be, I needed to be unsettled because there are lots of assumptions you make in war. Like, are these people like me? Is that why I'm more empathetic towards them than perhaps the Yemenites who are dying the same day and, and, and things like that? Mm -hmm. So. So a Ukrainian woman confronts a Russian soldier in Hemschek after Jericho Brown duplex. And this unidentified woman said, take these seeds and put them in your pocket so at least sunflowers will grow when you lie down to die. What seeds will you carry in your pockets when you lie down among the worms and fungi when you die? Above ground, we the living won't comply with those who come here just to watch us die. None of you will see our spring blue sky, nor the summer yellow flowers blooms, whose life is dead to the eyes so glazed with winter's bleak decline. Those whose pockets carry orders they should defy. Hold out your hand, accept what I've planted in your mind. Heed the part that knows we are of one tribe, the all of all who hunger, love, and cry, who plow the ground for seed, not flesh and flies. What will grow from the breakdown of your life depends on the seeds you carry when that time arrives. Yeah, excellent poem, as always, Dick. Just great stuff. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, that was Richard you know, Westheimer yeah. with a, a Ukrainian woman confronts a Russian soldier in Heinichuk. Yeah, thanks so much, Dick. And then let's see. Well, no, Diane, let's go to Andrew. Then I just saw Andrew turn on his camera. So here we go. Here's Andrew. Andrew, hey, how you doing? Hello. Um, really good. Um Coming to you from Australia. Excellent. So, what time is it there in Australia? As they say, oh, it's uh, six fifteen a.m. Oh, wow! You got up early. Oh, yeah, I got up early. I went to bed early. Got up early, and uh, I've been lurking on your um, on your uh, page for a couple of months now. I'm very impressed with all you poets out there, and I'm a bit of a beginner myself, relative. Excellent. Well, it's very great to see you. I'm glad you could join. So, what did you have that you wanted to share? Well. Uh, how we thrive in in two 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 two. I emailed you before. Um, I hope that. Yeah, that's good. So go ahead. Came so, through. Yeah, yeah, I have it right here. So go ahead whenever you're ready. Yeah. So the so the prompt poem, and um, uh, I got inspired by uh, the shape of Barbara Kingsolver's poem, "How to Survive This." So I'll just read that fragment. <laughs> Um, how, to, how we thrive in 2222 after Barbara King, Kingsolver. Oh, misery, imperfect, universe of days stretched out ahead, she says in How to Survive This. The brilliance, human worlds of centuries, we still see the jewel and the poison pen, the broken, the lost, the refugee, the darkest histories. We know now what matters are love and kindness, and the ancient arts like timber and wire, the chair, the violin, the arranged flowers we desire. And still we yearn to understand why. Oh, I love that. Great ending. A surprise kind of in the suddenness of it. Good poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. And I'm so glad you could join us. And uh, thanks you got Trudinic right. 
it's it's awesome. Not many people can say it down here. Excellent. So, well, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, and hope you join again soon. Thank you. Okay. So yeah, so that was um, yeah, Andrew Andrew Tredinick, Tredinick and um, let's see. Yeah, so some people are dropping out, but we have um, Jerry. So I, I guess I didn't get to some people quick enough because we had a, a, other people here and then and then they've left. But that's totally fine. Let's go to Jerry. Ask Jerry to unmute. Jerry, how you doing? Hi, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you over on the Zoom as well. So what do you have uh, that you would like to share today? Well, I have a poem. But what I want to do, I, I get really political on a lot of stuff, and I thought... Yeah, there's lots of folks going to cover that one. I wanted to use a little bigger vision because sometimes you got to look a little longer. Mm -hmm. So I got a short one for you. It's called A Stitch in Time. Okay. Yep. Hope for the sake of hope. Hope for the joy of hope. Hope for the freedom of hope. Truth for the sake of truth. Truth for the joy of truth. Truth for the freedom of truth. Fact for the sake of fact. Fact for the joy of fact. Fact for the freedom of fact. Hope, truth, and fact for the sake of joy and freedom. In 200 years, that's what counts. Excellent. I love the repetition. That was a really good poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jerry. Tim, thank you so much. I am so glad to say bye-bye, Skype. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> this is wonderful. Yeah, it really Take is. Take care, Mel. All the best. Yeah. yeah, excellent. Thanks. Take care, Jerry. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Let's see. Is there anything else we haven't talked to yet? I think that's it. So, so this is uh, this is Carlton Johnson's poem. Uh, once again, it was "What will happen next time?" Or no, just "What will happen next?" And there's an epigram. Um, now it's been ten thousand years. Man has cried a billion tears for what he never knew. From now, man's reign is through. But through eternal night, the twinkling of starlight, so very far away, maybe it's only yesterday. And that's from In the Year 2525 by Zagger and Evans, which I'm not familiar with at all, so we'll have to check that out at some point. Here's the poem. Off in the distance of a future long since forgotten, those still standing have ceased changing, brains are too big to support their own weight, and inertia creeps in. Only thought remains. The end of the line is near, as what became of man, the evolved soul, is one with all that he surveys. Time is lost in the bygone days. Space and time are just fragments of the someone's filigree of intents. Long and dark the tunnel of yesterdays, billions upon billions of light years, a haze of protest stars, gone to rust in days, and nights mean nothing new. There is only the now and only the one evolved one basking in the light of the nearly forgotten. Sun small measure of some pre-humanity light made through and through the wings of stardust, ride and grasp for tendrils of purple-blue rose nebulae. The universe is a harsh and cold place, nary an atom in a stadium-sized space, and naturally no one can hear. You scream or even just call, just call to hear others' voice. But then what is voice? Humans now have no need for encumbrances like speech and talking about the frailties of the human heart long since evolved with stone, iron, and sand. Yeah, so beautiful poem. I love that. That's Carlton Johnson with uh, What Will Happen Next. Thanks, Carlton. 
Um, let's see. And here's one last quick one. This is um, um, Cynthia Guntherman. This is the, for the prompt 2222. And here we go. 2222. It has always been my dream to do this, but now that we have achieved teleportation, I see there are kinks. I have gotten used to landing with a thud on my butt, and collisions in the air are rather rare. I did want to see Uncle Abe, but not his junk. Now here I am at Disney World, smack dab on the lap of some middle-aged guy, while his wife scowls at me, and the ticket taker shakes his fist and yells, nobody skips the line. For Twilight Zone, Tower of Terror. Very fun. Thanks for sharing that one. I really enjoyed reading that, uh, Cindy. Um, that was Cynthia Guntherman. And, um, okay. Let's see what else we have. Who's still hanging on? Okay. So that's going to be the show for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me and for doing this. Um, the, the, the Zoom really works, I, I got to say. And I, I feel bad that I haven't switched to Zoom before, earlier. Now, the, uh, the prompt for next week... Oh, no, I guess I have to do the Saiku. Don't forget the Saiku. So here is my little Saiku for this week. It's based on this story from, um, uh, from Caltech. And here you go, if you can see this. Um, oh, that's why. So maybe I, need, I don't want to be on that screen anyway. Okay. A microbial compound in the gut leads to anxious behaviors in mice. And what these researchers at Caltech found is that they could implant um, a certain kind of bacteria that had been engineered to release a certain compound that bacteria is engineered for EPS, it's called, for ethylphenyl sulfate. And if they were injected in their gut with this bacteria that produces for EPS, they developed anxiety. Um, they would hide in their cages and be afraid of um, what to do, you know, They'd be afraid to explore. And so they kind of induced anxiety disorders through the gut biome, which raises a lot of questions about how much we're influenced by things like that. Like, I, I even wondered, I mean, they don't talk about the mechanism in this paper, but, you know, you think about toxoplasmosis and that crazy, um, that crazy way that that, that reproduction cycle works where a, a mouse gets infected and then, it, and then the, the virus goes to the brain of the mouse and makes them unafraid. So they end up getting eaten more likely by a predator. And then it, because the virus, the virus or bacteria has to go into the predator in order to fi finish the reproductive cycle. And so it infects a mouse and then the mouse loses its inhibition and gets eaten faster. Um, so that it can go into a, a cat or something. And so I was thinking of the same thing. I wonder if something along those same lines is happening. Like if there's a bacteria that induces um, anxiety, uh, could it be that 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 bacteria is um, like battling the other bacteria that's good for you? And one of the ways it might um, you know survive better and fight off its bacterial opponents in your gut is if it increases the acidic, um, the pH balance of your your gut, your stomach, um, which is something that anxiety does. So maybe it's like fighting this sort of war inside you and giving you anxiety. Isn't that a crazy thought? I don't know. It's possible. Uh, the, the researchers here don't speculate. So here's my quick psych who about that interesting article I saw. Oops. Where am I going? This one. The captain thinks he steers the ship of hungry crew. 
The captain thinks he steers the ship of hungry crew. That is your Saiku for today, and that is your show for today. Thanks, everybody. It's just been a great one. Uh, just so many wonderful poems just all across the board. Two and a half hours of poetic goodness. Uh, and I'm glad you could be here for it with me. Now, next week's guest on the Rattlecast... Oh, the prompt, too. The prompt for next week on the Rattlecast is going to be this. Write a discord poem. A discord is defined by its lack of predictability. Uh, no one line in the poem should resemble any other line in terms of length and meter, and no line should rhyme. In other words, each line should be unique. So the freest of free poems, I guess. A discord. I never heard that before. So you learn something new every day. That is your prompt for next week. Next week's guest is going to be Kashiana Singh with her newest book, Woman by the Door. People uh, who are regular viewers probably recognize Kashiana's name. She she's, um, appears frequently in the, in the open lines and, and in the chat windows. She's been a, a regular um, viewer of the show, and she has a new book, Woman by the Door. That'll be the, she'll be the guest for Rattlecast number 134. That's next week, Sunday, March 6th, the usual time. Uh, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great weekend in the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.